Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. So glad that you're here on Christmas Day as we remember the Lord's birth. My name is Bruce Gardner. If you're new to our church, uh, I'm the senior pastor here. And a, math, a, a guy who's really good at math and science explained to me how often we get this occasion to celebrate Christmas Day on a Sunday. He tells me it occurs in five and six and 11-year cycles, okay? So it's, it's unusual to celebrate the Lord's birth on the Lord's Day, and I'm so glad that you've joined us. Let me tell you a little bit of, of what I'm going to do now to share the Word of God with you. Almost every sermon I've ever preached, and probably most, if not all, the sermons you've ever heard are in the third person. In other words, the teacher or the preacher opens up the Bible, reads Scripture, and from the outside explains to you uh, what it means, why God put that in His Word. Today I'm going to share with you a first-person sermon, which requires the, the same amount of study, is, at least for me, a little more frightening. You take the Scripture, but you, rather than explain it from a third person, you try to climb inside the story and share God's Word from the perspective of one of the people who lived through what was going on in God's Word. Uh, so today I'm going to share with you the Christmas story from the point of view of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Let's pray first. Lord, thank You for bringing us together. Thank You for friends and family, people who have been part of this congregation uh, for many years, and for new friends, Lord, that You've sent our way more recently, and for guests from out of town who have decided to celebrate Your birth uh, in worship with Your people. Thank You for them. Bless them. Give us all, Lord, encouragement from Your Word as I share Scripture from Joseph's point of view, I pray, God, that you would uh, allow me to do it clearly and accurately uh, without adding anything to what you have written, but to help us see, Lord, what you did through the life of an ordinary man and how it might help us as we follow you ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I suppose I should introduce myself. I've been part of the Christmas story from the very beginning, but my hunch is most of you don't know me very well at all. And until God intervened, really, there's no reason for you to know me. My only claim to fame growing up was that I was in King David's line. My father's name was Jacob, but not, not the famous Jacob that everybody knows. I was just an ordinary, obscure man, a carpenter, in fact. I grew up in the little town of Bethlehem, and I grew up doing the ordinary work and learning the trade from men much like myself. I wasn't a poet, not a philosopher, not an expert in the Word. I wouldn't be anyone's favorite speaker on the Sabbath at the synagogue. I had a faith, and it was real to me, and I tried to understand what God was telling me and tried to do what He said. but. I was just a carpenter. I just had this very small claim to fame of being in the line of our greatest king. I was Joseph, the very far removed son of David. But even that's not much of a claim to fame. See, King David was born a thousand years before I lived. So by this time, there were thousands of us who could claim to stand in that line. And certainly my day was very different from King David's. That warrior poet, 
He led us very close to God. He wrote Scripture for us. He was, we were told, a man after God's own heart. But again, that was a thousand years earlier. By the time I lived, Israel was in a very dark place. We got up every day and were reminded of how far away we were from God's promises and God's purpose for us because every day of our lives we were under Roman domination. We were given a certain measure of freedom, and I went to Sabbath synagogue every, every Saturday. But every day we were reminded of how far we had fallen away from what God wanted for us in the first place. Most people in my time, they were even afraid to dream that God would once again work in Israel as He had, we could read in our Scripture, so long ago. Life wasn't easy for me as a worker either. I grew up in Bethlehem, but I eventually moved up in the Galilee region to a town called Nazareth. I didn't particularly want to go there either. It wasn't a very big place. In fact, Nazareth wasn't much bigger than the campus you're sitting on right now. But there was work there. And I started plying my trade. I made tools, and I helped people build their houses. The only thing that was truly great about Nazareth was the girl I met there. Her name was Mary. 16 years old, and I don't know if you've ever fallen in love, but we did. And it was a different day than your own. We had a long period of engagement. We called it a betrothal. It was supposed to last a year or more. This was to allow our families to get to know each other, to see if we were truly compatible according to our families. We were going to work out a dowry. And they had to make a careful investigation of our family lines back in Jerusalem to make sure that we weren't related to each other. A nation as small and tight-knit as ours, sometimes you didn't get to marry the person you first looked at because, as it turns out, they were a distant relative. But I got to know Mary, and the more I knew her, the more I loved her. I'm a carpenter. I like to work with wood. I live in a world of cause and effect, where you take tools to wood, and the wood responds in very predictable ways. Mary lived on a whole other level from I did. In our daily conversations, Scripture spilled out of this girl. She would go to synagogue, and maybe she listened more carefully than I did, but she seemed to hear and absorb what God had written. And her faith, her character, everything about her was as solid as the pillars of our temple. And in those days, I began to dream. Man, I don't know if you've ever been there, but when you've met the one you know you're going to marry, and you love her with all your heart, you start to think about what that's going to be like. You start to look ahead to the children you're going to have if God grants them to you and how you're going to raise them. And believe me, as a carpenter, I was going to do my best with both stone and wood to build her the best house that a simple carpenter who had been born in Bethlehem and learned his trade in Nazareth could build this simple girl. That's why it was so surprising. As close as we were when Mary sort of pulled back from me got quiet, started avoiding me. I didn't understand it. Like all couples, we'd had our ups and downs, and we were getting to know each other better and better, but it had pretty much been a straight line. 
She had never pulled back. She had never been cold and distant the way I found her then. And finally, I pressed her and pressed her. And I couldn't believe what she told me. She said, Joseph, I'm pregnant. Well, pregnant? How can that be? I've been honorable in this relationship. I've waited in the betrothal. I hadn't put a hand on her. I couldn't believe that she would betray me in this way. In this little town, as far as I knew, I had no enemies. There wasn't a man in this town that was going to treat both of us with such contempt. I started thinking about who possibly could have seduced my bride, who would have embarrassed her and brought shame to both of our families and wrecked what once were dreams and turned them into a living nightmare. And then what's worse, she made up the craziest story I've ever heard. She said that an angel had appeared to her and told her that the Holy Spirit would come upon her and plant a baby in her womb, and the boy she was pregnant with was to be our Messiah, the one the prophets wrote about 800 and 1,000 years earlier. Well, come on. What would you have thought? I went home brokenhearted. I asked her not to speak to me about it again. I went home and mused and mused, and I just couldn't make any sense of it. Nothing went according to her character. My dream had turned into a living nightmare. And for the first time in my life, I thought of the old law and remembered that Moses had said when a woman was caught in that kind of immorality, she was to be stoned by the community. I was grateful that those customs did not endure in our day, but for the first time in my life, that brutality made a little sense to me. I wanted retribution. More than anything else, I wanted my righteousness to be vindicated. I'd done the right thing. I had every right to go to the city gates and stand in front of the elders and protest my innocence and her sinfulness and publicly break it off because if I didn't, I was always going to be the scoundrel. These little towns were going to talk about me as the one who strayed. I didn't want that. So I thought about it and I struggled with it. Ultimately, love won out. I knew I had done nothing wrong and I believed with all my heart that she had, but I couldn't bring myself to embarrass Mary and to shame her that way. I told her we'd make up some story and she was free to go her way and I'd go mine and somehow I'd try to start over. Mary left town about then. She went to the hill country to stay with some old relatives of hers, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And I don't know if you've ever had that kind of grief when someone shatters your expectations, turns your whole life around. If you've ever had that kind of sorrow in your life, you know how hard it is to sleep. I worked at my bench and I walked around the shop seeking for comfort and peace anywhere, and sleep was hard to come by in those days. But one night, while I was sleeping, an angel came to me. I dreamed I was walking in a dark place, but an angel of the Lord came to me and spoke to me as clearly and personally as anyone ever has in my life. 
And he said, Joseph, don't you be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is in her womb is from the Holy Spirit. Well, I I don't expect you to understand how I felt when I woke up. I've never felt such a mixture of elation and relief and nervousness all at the same time. As soon as I could, I got myself together and went went to the hill country and found Mary and apologized to her for not believing her and took her home, and we became husband and wife. Even then, I didn't touch her. But oh, let me tell you, people started talking. They talked about me, and they talked about her, and I wrestled with it, and I struggled. Then, as so often happens, government made things even more difficult. I'm told that in your day, when your government decides to take a census, they'll send someone to your door. Well, remember, we lived in Roman times, and we had a Caesar named Augustus. It never occurred to him to be that service-oriented. He put out a decree across his wide empire that everyone, every man should go home to his hometown to check in for the purposes of all things of taxation. Well, that added injury to insult. I had to go from Nazareth back to Bethlehem, and only I was required to go, but I didn't want to leave Mary in that town. People's tongues were so bitter and so caustic. I told her she'd go with me, and it was three days, hard journey. We did the best we could, and sure enough, wouldn't you know it, just as we're arriving, she goes into labor. Now, I had a little bit of relief because I am going to my hometown, and even with these stories circulating around, the stories that I completely understood because I'd have been on the other side of it initially, I was going home. I had kin there. I expected them to show us some measure of kindness in spite of what they'd heard and they believed about both of us. But they didn't. There were other relatives there. Everyone we could have leaned on as a blood relation to help us even then was already too crowded with people. I looked in a guest inn, an ugly little place where people who had no other options went. Dangerous place, really. And there wasn't even room there. Finally, we ended up in a place where animals were kept. We depended on, upon the kindness of strangers Mary, in her wisdom, had thought ahead, and she had brought swaddling cloths, but we were ill-prepared for what happened next, because she had not only to give birth, she had to be her own midwife. And I was pretty good with tools, but let me tell you, cutting the cord of your own son in those conditions, trying to comfort your teenage wife as she goes through the pains of childbirth, without her mother or any other woman in her family to look to for encouragement, It was hard. But he was born and he was healthy and we got him cleaned up and Mary wrapped him in swaddling cloths and we did the best we could. There were no other options. All we had was a floor that had been trod every day by animals. She wrapped him up tight and she laid him to rest in a manger. And we felt the cold and we felt the loneliness. 
The prophets had said that this is exactly what would happen, that the Messiah someday would be born in Jerusalem, but no one came to greet us. The scribes and the prophets and those who should have been looking for God's promise, nobody came to comfort us, nobody came to celebrate, except of all people, some country bumpkins that were tending their sheep nearby. I don't know if you're your own family, if you've been present at a birth, but believe me, you're not expecting strangers, and you're certainly not expecting shepherds. These guys crowded in with their own story of God speaking to them, appearing to them and singing glory to God in the highest and telling them to go to Bethlehem and they would find our son, a little baby boy, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So there we were, frightened Mary, confused Joseph, and a few shepherds smelling of sheep and smelling of wineskins. We felt the distance. We felt the loneliness. But at least, I thought, the toughest part is behind me. Like I told you, I'm a carpenter, not a theologian. I had no idea what would happen next. We tried to go back to Nazareth, but it was just too tough of an environment. I didn't want Mary growing up around those rumors and growing up around the mistreatment of other women. So I decided that we'd settle in Bethlehem. Our family, I thought, would warm up to us eventually, and I started working my trade there. It was there that God showed up yet again. While we were living in a little house I'd rented, while I did what I could to provide for my family after Jesus' circumcision and dedication, we had some more visitors. These were foreigners. They didn't even speak our language. They came in saying that they were astronomers from the east, all the way from Persia, in fact. And they had seen the star corresponding to the birth of our son and had come seeking him. Well, that was a bit much for Mary to take in. They brought gifts, too. They brought gifts fit for a king. They brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. And these foreigners did what no one in Israel had done except for the shepherds. They bowed down and worshipped my son. It was about then that God spoke again. And he told me, Joseph, people are looking for your son to kill him. See, the shepherds had gone first to Jerusalem. They assumed that a king would have to be born in Jerusalem. And they went asking, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? And that enraged one of the worst men that ever lived, Herod. He was looking for my son to kill him. And God told me in another angelic visitation, Joseph, you take your little family and you run. So I did just that. I gathered them up by night and we fled to Egypt. Now, I don't know if many of you have thought that through. Here's a Jewish carpenter living in a foreign nation, Egypt, a nation that once enslaved us, a nation, in fact, that had once been in charge of us for 400 long years. Believe me, I needed every bit of that gold and frankincense and myrrh. That's the only way we made it. There were days I looked in that cask of gold and thought to myself, this is the very provision of God for me, the guardian to his son. And we raised Jesus as best we could. 
We took him to synagogue. He heard the Scriptures. We kept the feasts. In fact, when Jesus was 12 years old, we took him to Jerusalem. By this time, our family had welcomed us back into their circle. So we went with a whole bunch of our kin to Jerusalem and stayed in Jerusalem for the feast and had gotten a whole day away when I finally caught up to Mary in the crowd and said, how's Jesus doing? And she said, I thought you had him. And we looked among all of our kin, and can you believe it? I lost the Son of God. (laughs) You can't possibly begin to understand the weight that was on my shoulders every day as I helped raise the Messiah. Sometimes when I hear you sing your Christmas songs, I wonder whether you know Jesus at all. You sing, little Lord Jesus, no crying He makes. Oh, believe me, He cried. We changed his diapers. I helped, I helped him learn to walk. And he would run along on stubby little legs and eventually fall over. He'd fall down. And he would cry and he would bleed. And Joseph, the distant descendant of David, this carpenter would take him up into his lap and comfort him, wipe and kiss his tears away. And he grew. He grew strong. I had a great privilege. I put my fingerprints on the Son of God. Eventually, they would call him the carpenter, and he was good at his trade, better than I had ever been. He could make a yoke for oxen that was easy on them, good tool. But because this was God's Son, he had bigger and better plans for Jesus than anything this carpenter could get his arms around. When we found him in the temple that day when he was 12 years old, his mother said to him, Son, why have you put us through this? We've been looking for you. And Jesus turned and said to her, Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I have to be in my father's house? I got to tell you, I, I didn't really understand that. It stung a little bit. I hadn't done everything I'd liked, but I had done my best, the best a carpenter from Bethlehem could ever do. I had done for my son, Jesus. Life is like that sometimes. It takes turns and twists that you don't particularly expect. God sent us back to live in Nazareth, apparently in fulfillment of some scripture that he had written about Jesus. That led us into all kind of trouble. Of all the places that God could have sent us to live, He sent us back to Nazareth where my boy had to grow up hearing the cruel taunts of young people that said things like this. Hey, Jesus, you have two dads. We all just have one. You have whoever you think your real, whoever your real dad is, and you have Joseph too. And that hurt, and I struggled with it. What I want you to know is this. I'm just an ordinary man, a carpenter. I never did have a faith like Mary's. When God stepped into Mary's life and broke her expectations open and subjected her to the same hardships I've been telling you about, what poured out of that girl was worship and even Scripture. 
She sometimes didn't understand things, but she could tell, I could tell she was taking them deep into her heart and processing from what she'd heard in our Scriptures what God was doing in her life. I never really quite got there. And maybe some of you are like her. Your faith is deep and your obedience is immediate, but maybe you're more like me. Maybe you find it hard to believe. Maybe you work with your hands too and you live like I do in a world of cause and effect. Maybe miracles are hard for you to come to grips with. That was certainly my case. As many times as God spoke to me, I was always confused. I was often fearful. But here's what I learned. Once I knew what God wanted me to do in all of that struggle and all of that hurt and all of that fear and confusion and all the offense I took up as people mistreated both my wife and Jesus, I always landed on the side of faith. Once I knew what God wanted me to do, this simple carpenter struggled through it and found enough faith to do what God asked him to do. You might think about that in this upcoming year. You might find yourself in a much smaller way in a situation similar to mine where God turns your whole world upside down, where hearing from Him and obeying Him costs you relationships and costs you your own dreams. Eventually, they would call my son the carpenter. I taught him that. I put my hands all over him as he was growing up. But much more importantly, he put his fingerprints on my very own soul. So as you go through this new year, and life doesn't turn out as you expect, and you're asked to do hard things, and all you have to go on is a simple word from God, I'd encourage you to land on the side of faith and to doubt your doubts and trust what God has told you. In all of that time, the single scripture I held on to was written 800 years before I was born. I'd heard it before in the synagogue, but it never once occurred to me that it could apply to me, Joseph, the son of David, the carpenter from Bethlehem who worked in Nazareth. Isaiah had written that a virgin would conceive and she would bring forth a son and his name would be called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. It's all true. And I was part of it. See, when we told the story of the birth of my son, I'm way off in the background. I'm not the most important character. But you should know that then and now and all through Scripture, and I believe still today, God works and speaks in the lives of ordinary people. And many of you won't be like Mary. You'll be more like me. You'll find it hard to believe God. But I hope you'll consider my story and land on the side of faith and trust God through it. Father, thank you for working through ordinary people. In this congregation, Lord, there may be a few who are genuinely in the world's eyes and maybe even in your own extraordinary most of us, beginning with me, are just normal people. But you have always done your work through people who are not otherwise impressive. You did it with Joseph. You did it with Mary. You did it with your disciples. So I pray, God, that as we anticipate the new year together as in our family and in our friendships and as a congregation, 
that we would follow the simple example of a pretty obscure man named Joseph, son of Jacob, descendant of David, who heard what you said and put it into practice, even though he was fearful and had many doubts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <laughs>